Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Welcome to Election Shock Therapy. I'm Chris Moore, and this is a special one-off episode. We like to do a few more of these things. Uh, joining me in my office today is Sam Mulberry from the History Department, uh, my, one of my usual compatriots. And uh, a new voice. Uh, this is Scott Winter. Who? Well, I, I wouldn't claim an unusual compatriot, but a compatriot who doesn't normally appear on this podcast. <laughs> unusual compatriot. I'm going to add that to my bio on the Bethel University website. Right. Um, uh, professor in the uh, Department of English. Um, uh, uh, professor of Journalism. Uh, ed, um, advisor to the Clarion and unusual compatriot. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Um, we're, this uh, this podcast is geared towards talking about everything leading up to uh, November 8th and the election and helping us make sense of it from a political science perspective. But one of the things that political scientists are only um, rank amateurs at talking about is, are, is journalism and the media. And so I want to talk to you about this. You've been a practicing journalist. You're now teaching journalism. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what you, where you've been, where, where, who you've written for, and, and, and what brought you to Bethel. Well, most of my background is in sports or feature journalism. So I worked at the Grand Forks Herald. I worked at the Fargo Forum. I worked at the Bismarck Tribune. Basically, all the big names you hear about in North sure, Dakota sure, journalism. Sure. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, and then, you know, my dad was a journalist. My wife is a journalist, and she worked for um, the Lincoln Journal Star, um, mm. the uh, Denver Post, and and she's worked done some work for NPR on okay. and American public media for their big projects. So mostly I've lived with an investigative reporter who's covered big political stories. On my end, you know, sports can be as political as, as any beast oh, you know, that there is. But so my, my experience is a little different. But, you know, as a bit of a, you know, media historian, um, I see that there's, you know, there are big problems with how this election is being covered. And there are, bi- there are not big problems with how this election is being oh, covered. Okay. That, 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 uh, there's some of the best journalism that's happening is happening now, too. So I, I think it's, you know, I've had some insights with some of my students who are covering this election for major media outlets. And I'm, I'm pretty fascinated by what they have to go through to, to try to show readers that they're just trying to get out truth, mm. but all the readers uh, have you know their own jerseys on, and, and it's hard for them to see you know what is a fact and what isn't a fact. Sure. So we talked about uh, sports, and I'm sort of curious. We oftentimes use sports analogies to describe politics. Have you seen? Is that a trend that's happening more and more, or is this something we've done for? Is it? Is this not a new thing? I think it's always been a truth, but I think it's become a nastier and nastier truth as people are more. Um, I don't know. They wear their jerseys much more loudly than they used to. We're all wearing red or we're all wearing blue when it comes to politics. Sure. And if you look at it historically, um, a lot of people think, you know, a major breakthrough in political coverage that kind of changed the day for Americans was, was Watergate, obviously. Sure. And, yep. you that. know, Woodward and Bernstein, I have four students at the Clarion who are going to be listening to Bob Woodward talk about that in relation to this election next week in Washington, D.C. And, and that was a watershed moment. But I think another big moment that has probably more bearing on this election was when Miami Herald reporters reported on Gary Hart's, um, mm. you know, Trip down, down to rice down, on the yep. monkey business, the yep. boat that was literally called the monkey business. And that started to change whether um, journalists were going to cover 
um, the personal lives of these candidates and uncover everything. And that and, only amped up with Bill Clinton and some of his um, exactly. extramarital affairs. And the justification for that from editors was that if, if um, candidates were going to make uh, character an issue or were going to make family values an issue, then their personal lives mattered. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and that's how journalists justified that. And now we see that kind of journalism or at times non-journalism all the time. What do you mean by non-journalism? Well, I just get really tired of what I think people think is reporting but is not reporting. So okay. journalism is one thing and reporting to me is another. People lump journalists as anybody who's on TV talking about politics sure. or talking about business or talking about the economy. Anybody can pontificate. But real journalism is when you're reporting things that I don't know, mm. you know, as a reader, as a viewer. Disclosing and, new facts. Yeah, exactly. Like, and so most news sources, especially major news sources, they're all corporate. And a lot of them, the newsroom has been boned to death. And by that, I mean there are fewer reporters covering more stuff than ever, okay, mm-hmm. which means there's less reporting, but there's more news because of 24-hour news channels, right? Sure. So there's tons of news, and there's not much reporting. In political science, we call this the echo chamber. Right. Um, the idea that we keep sort of repeating the same stories and ideas over and over again, and that those chambers look differently depending on which jersey you're wearing, to, to use your right. turn of phrase. And fairness uh, over the last 20 years seems to have been reduced to, let's put somebody in a red jersey, let's put somebody in a blue jersey, and let's have them fight it out and give mm-hmm. them equal time. But that's not reporting. Okay, we report by finding out new stuff and whether that stuff is blue or red makes the blue people happy or the red people happy shouldn't matter. Uh, Bringing it back to a sports analogy, my my father was a sports editor and um, one time he went to a swim banquet for a high school swim team. He was the guest speaker. Okay. Okay? Trust me, this is going to relate. Okay. (laughs) He was a guest speaker at a swim meet and uh, uh, he got there and he greeted the coach and the coach said, hey, before we have you speak, Abe, uh, we have some parents who want to ask you some questions. And he said, okay. And this mom got up and said, you know, I always assumed that your paper was biased, but now I have proof of it. Uh-huh. And this is in front of all these parents and these high school swimmers and little mm-hmm. kids, little brothers and sisters. And my dad got on the mic and said, really, I don't know what you mean. And she said, well, we always knew that you liked that other school, not our school, because, but now we know it because I added up all the words and all the swim stories this year. Uh-huh. And at the end, you wrote 33 more words on the other high school <laughs> than you did on our high school, which shows that you are biased. Mm. Right, so there's no way you can win with people who are wearing their jerseys. And I don't predisposed think. to find that kind of thing. That's right. I can't even remember your question, but I really wanted to tell that story. I like that story a lot. That we um, Adam Johnson uh, joined us um, a couple of weeks ago, and we talked about the idea of motivated reasoning. Mm-hmm. That once you come up with a predis- predisposed position, uh, you'll fit all the information you can find into your predisposed biases. Well, this election. Uh, we, we were inspired to start this podcast because of the sheer weirdness of this election, uh, both uh, things like the deep unpopularity of both the two major candidates, but also just the celebrity status of Donald Trump, the um, the political uh, the political uh, lineage of, of, of Hillary Clinton. And we thought this would be just a great time to sort of talk about these things from the perspective of political scientists, from the perspective of a journalist. How unusual is this kind of election, and how unusual is the coverage of these two candidates? Well, first of all, you know, politicians rarely ever want to say anything that's even moderately controversial. Controversial. Right. Well, now look at this election. 
right? Mm-hmm. I have a former student who works at the Washington Post. Her name's Jenna Johnson. And she's moved up from softer beats, soft news, to, to harder beats. Um, and then she went to the Afghan, you know, Afghan war and, and all this stuff. And now she wanted to cover her first, like, full-time um, election. So they put her on, on, on a candidate they thought wouldn't be, you know, too hard for her to cover. She covered Scott Walker. So she followed <laughs> Scott Walker for a couple of weeks, and boom, he was gone. Mm-hmm. So they decided to put her on another candidate that they thought, well, probably wouldn't last that long, and it wouldn't be too much pressure for her. So guess who they put her on? It's a Trump. Donald Trump. Wow. And so she was the one who, you know, was writing those stories and, and the editors creating those headlines that made the Trump camp really unhappy. And they mm-hmm. banned. They banned her. They, they banned, from. literally banned her newspaper, banned her, took away her credentials. And so and you have to realize her editor is Marty Barron. That's uh, Marty Barron of Spotlight fame with the Boston Herald. Mm-hmm. He wasn't going to just go away, and she wasn't either. So now she still follows the campaign everywhere they go, but she just walks in with all the other people. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that decision by the Trump campaign to uh, ban her um, didn't hurt coverage at all because unlike – uh, most politicians who don't want to say anything controversial, he'll say anything. Donald Trump will say anything, which sure. is a reporter's dream. Okay, you just want a good story. That's what you, that's what your bias is as a good reporter. You just want a good story, and the coverage changed because of them banning uh, the credentials of the of the Washington Post because she now became she now covered it as a Trump follower, you know, and sure. she interviewed more people in the crowd, which kind of changed that coverage into who are these people, you know, and then the deplorables comment came out and then boom, we were off and running again. Sure. Does this create a pernicious problem for democracy? I know this is sort of my department, but uh, is with Trump being such an attractive source of news, the way you described journalism and reporting, he's he's disclosing new facts. He's providing new insights into his character, into his information, in ways that Hillary Clinton is not. She's a far more guarded candidate. In fact, the criticism of her has been that she is too guarded as a candidate. And that has disproportionately swung most of the media attention towards Donald Trump and away from her uh, to both the displeasure of conservatives and liberals. Uh, liberals would like us to spend more attention time focusing on Hillary Clinton, and conservatives would like us to focus more attention on her too, but on her foibles. Uh, is this a problem for uh, is this a problem for journalism, or is journalism functioning appropriately? And we should be uh, we should be correcting for that in some way, I guess. Well, I think good news outlets are functioning appropriately. Okay. Okay. Here's here, here's a problem. Let's say a candidate throws out something that is unsubstantiated. Mm-hmm. Well, if a reporter just reports that without checking to see if it's true or not, that can mm-hmm. be irresponsible. And if a candidate just throws stuff out there just to see what sticks, whether it's true or not, uh, it is legitimized when it is reported upon, right? Good point. It's true that they said it. It's not necessarily true anything behind it, right? Right, right. So, so that can be a, a rough ethical thing for, for journalists. But I think, I guess when I think about your question, I think a little more about the irony of of how people perceive the media. So the Please, assumption yeah. is it's a liberal media mm-hmm. and they love and they love always the liberal candidate. But to be honest with you, most journalists did not like George W. Bush, Bush political journalist mainly because he wasn't a very transparent president. His mm. cabinet wasn't transparent, his whole administration wasn't transparent. It was hard to get anything out of them. Then Obama ran saying he was going to be the most transparent president and maybe he got a little bit unfair coverage because of that, because journalists love transparency. Sure. But now he 
you know, according to multiple sources, is now the least transparent president <laughs> ever, right? Sure. So this is just a, a you know, a, a road that we're going down. Mm-hmm. So to be honest with you, the thing with the emails with Clinton and all that, most journalists are not happy with Clinton at all because of the transparency issue, the lack of transparency, right. the, the opacity, frankly. Right. Yet Trump, everything's out in the open. Even when he talks about things that he won't give up, like his taxes or his, you know, how much money he makes, anything like that, he says everything that comes to his head, and that makes for a good story, as opposed sure. to Hillary Clinton. So if a journalist had a choice, they would rather cover the Trump campaign than the Clinton campaign because there's more news coming out of it, frankly. Oh, so this is fascinating to me, uh, and that makes that makes sense. I, uh, I'm thinking about sort of the ways that technology has shaped uh, our perception of politicians, our, our gathering of information. I know that technology has rocked the world of journalism. You talked about sort of the boning of, uh, of newsrooms and, uh, and how that has affected the ability to report deeply on issues. How has the rise of social media also impacted a coverage of political campaigns? Some news sources, I think, have really taken advantage of social media to get their stuff out there and to reach audiences. Maybe it wouldn't have reached before, including younger audiences like mm-hmm. our students. But I think the democratization of of the Internet has obviously also created a fragmentation of the Internet so that since people can choose who they get their news from mm-hmm. and they're not real choosy about whether it's ethical journalism or not, I think that causes a real problem for the democracy. And you talk about echo chambers and people just wanting to. I mean, my wife got in an argument with her family the other day where she brought in a story from the Washington Post and the other, some other members of her family uh, came back with uh, a purported news story from a website called yesimright.com. <laughs> okay, so, so sometimes. That, that's too good to be true. Yeah, sometimes there's an argument. I mean, you just can't fight an argument uh, when people are playing by different rules. Right. You know, so. I don't know if I've answered your question, but uh, that's what you led me to. Well, I mean, it seems to me that the, the technology and the development of social media technology is having um, diverse effects in our political process. On the one hand, it's making information, it's increasing the diffusion of information, and it's challenging traditional journalistic ethics uh, to to compete with some of with, with sources that have none. And at the same time, it's it's impelling our candidates, generally speaking, Donald Trump is an outlier here, to be much more self uh self filtering and to do, and to uh, prevent the disclosure of information i don't think our candidates in 2020 whoever they may be will be likely to be very self disclosing and very transparent hillary clinton if she wins it seems likely that she's going to win at this point at least will probably be even more secretive in the white house than obama or bush were before her because of sort of this attempt to control the flow of information at the same time though we we have a, a, we have the diffusion of information on the other side on the public consumption side we mentioned journalistic ethics a couple of times here too, and this is an area that I, I would confess I just um, I don't have a lot of familiarity with, but I've heard you talk a little bit about it. Um, can you talk about uh, the role of journalistic ethics and what challenges a presidential campaign might raise for them? Yeah, I think it's all kinds of challenges. I think in the political realm of reporting, you always have these 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 scary areas or gray areas of you know are you getting information off the record? Are you trying to find out what's really true? Uh, there's the fact checking area that's a little more you know easier to understand. Is it true or is it not true? And things like that. But I think in the end, journalists stick to you know, their own code for their own publication. But most journalists all agree that the Society of Professional Journalists Code, which is basically breaks down to four really simple rules, is the one that they have to follow. 
The problem with that code is sometimes when you're doing a story, the ethical values come into conflict with each other, which is oh, you know okay. the obvious problem with with any ethical dilemma that you're facing. That you know the right path may be clear, but is it hard to take that path? Now in journalism, usually the right path isn't so clear. Okay. So the four premises of the Society of Professional Journalists Code of Ethics are that number one, you seek truth and you report it. Mm-hmm. And for Christian journalists especially, this is really true. Um, I heard a, a guy from ProPublica, um, Marshall Allen, speak who said, you know, if you look at Luke and the opening lines of Luke, the book of Luke, it's basically a, an investigative reporter saying, hey, I've investigated the greatest story ever told. And I found corroborating right. witnesses. And, right, exactly. Yeah. And I'm going to report it and I'm going to tell the truth, you know, as it lays bare, not as I see it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so, so seek truth and report it. If you know it's true and, you know, knowledge is power, you get that out to your readers, you're doing, you know, the democracy a service. But the second value is minimize harm, hmm. right? Hmm. So what do you do when you have to seek truth and report it and you have to minimize harm to the democracy, to your readers? What do you do with that in terms of Trump allegations? You know what I mean? That can sure. be a confusing situation. Or uncovering police shootings or you know, anything Police else. shootings, when you're talking about victims of a crime, mm-hmm. sexual assault, shootings, you name it, do you minimize harm with the family? Do you minimize harm with having children see graphic images? You know, these come into conflict. The sure. third and fourth values, just to get them out there, because I said there were four, is, <laughs> you know, um, always act independently, independently mm-hmm. of the corporate ownership you have, independently of political parties, and to uh, be accountable when you make a mistake. Mm-hmm. That's really helpful. Um, and I can see how in various ways the, the kinds of things, the kinds of major news stories in this election would, would challenge, at least, especially the first two of those, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's Hillary Clinton and disclosure of her emails, which we just saw just this morning, there was another round of, of, email, of documents disclosed by the FBI regarding her email investigation. And political coverage is really dicey, too, because who is delivering that information? And are they right. doing it to try to gain something politically? And are they using you as a news organization mm-hmm. to win an election, to smear somebody else? You know, you have to make decisions all the time, particularly in the leadership of newsrooms as editors or producers at broadcast outlets of trying to figure out, are we being used here? I mean, when you think back to Watergate and all the president's men, Mm -hmm. that's what editors trying to decide. I mean, are Democrats just using us to get what they want to take down Nixon? Or is this truth? And is this a crime that's been committed? I mean, and once we figure out what's true, now let's decide if it's a story. And where does it go? Does it go on the front page? Is it a big story? Is it a small story? Mm -hmm. All that. Well, you've you've. I'm so glad you're here because I'm, I keep thinking of other questions I want to ask you as you pose, you pose things. And one of them is in the last two election cycles, we've seen the rise of something, particularly online, the fact checking website. Uh, um, fact check and uh, ProPublica does this, and a number of another of 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 news outlets have their own fact checking sites too. Is the is the rise of the fact checker? Is this something that has always existed, or is this coming about because of the gutting out of newsrooms that you previously discussed? Yeah, I think both. I think uh, you used to have a whole team of fact checkers at the New York Times, at the Washington Post, at Newsweek, at Time. Uh, they all had fact checkers, and they would check everything. Even after a story was done being edited, they would check everything again and again and again. Hmm. And but then there was the birth with social media of that of websites like politifact.org, okay? Mm-hmm. So politifact.org was created by Matt Waite and another guy um, at the, it was then the St. Petersburg Times. Now it's the Tampa Times. Um, and Matt Waite hates politics. He would, mm-hmm. he would rather, you know, report on, you know, dentistry 
or anything <laughs> while getting his tooth pulled by his mother-in-law than cover politics. <laughs> but he was so tired of being lied to when he had to talk to any government agency or politician that right. he and this other guy started PolitiFact, and it just caught on right away because they have this scale, obviously, this this fuel gauge right. of pants mostly all true all the way to pants on fire. Right. And he said there's no agenda there. We'll fact check anybody. Ask us to fact check any Democrat, any Republican, any government official. Uh, we just want to tell you whether it's true, and we'll do what we can. And now... Places like New York Times and NPR are getting really good at doing that in real time. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think it's a great thing. Unfortunately, I think it does get drowned out by this idea that uh, people assume the media is left-minded or assume it's right-minded, right. and they won't even listen to a fact-checker. Which is which? I, that's where I start to get really worried about the fate of our polity. Exactly. Because if we can't agree on common facts, we can, mm -hmm. we, can disagree, we can disagree on positions or policies or opinions. But if we can't agree on facts, um, we're in serious jeopardy. Well, and not only that, but if we can't believe in institutions, yeah, like like our local newspaper, like our local TV station, or like as now Trump is bringing up, we can't even trust our own election results. Right. If we're gonna we're gonna question those, well, that's third world stuff. Yeah, and that's scary. And Andy Bramson is a regular feature guest in this podcast, or guest. He's a regular host of this podcast, and we've talked last time about the issue of uh, questioning the the validity of elections and how that undermines democracy in developing countries. So. Yeah, I mean, in you know, I spent a lot of time in Ethiopia, and I was there um, a month after they held an election in which um, a candidate of of you know a, a majority party, but a minority of of one tribe in Ethiopia won something like 97% of the vote. Okay. And all these college students at the University of Addis Ababa, the biggest university in the biggest town in Ethiopia, were looking at each other saying, did you vote for him? Did you vote for him? Nobody could find mm. anybody who had voted for this guy. Who won 97% of the who vote. Who won 97% of the vote. And then you have unrest and you have shootings on campus yep. uh, with government taking control of campus. And this is a, a democracy that is backed by the U.S., Right. Sure. I mean, so for the U.S. to to start questioning, or for forty eight percent of people in the U.S. to start questioning even election results, that can get a little scary. Absolutely. Well, we I have one more question. Then uh, actually, well, a promo is something that you and I are headed, both headed off to do here. But um, we both teach at Bethel University here, which is a. Uh, um, a school with a deep Christian focus and emphasis, and we try to uh, bring that and question how that fits into our classrooms. How it might? How does it look differently to teach Christian journalist students versus teaching students at a secular institution? To be honest with you, I was really worried about it. I was really worried about what kind of materials I could use, and mm. and can we talk fairly on both sides? But I've found my students to be open to all kinds of ideas, open to me playing devil's advocate, all those mm -hmm. kinds of things. And I think if if Anything says something about Bethel University. I think Bethel student government's video that they just produced, which I think you're in it, yeah, um, yeah, just produced with leaders from the young, or from college Democrats, college Republicans, and put together with with faculty members, student life members, uh, the president of our institution and his wife. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, that's that's a symbol and uh, how they want to bring civility back to this, to the to, to how we talk about this election. Uh, tells me that you know we're in a good place. If we can put you know, if we can put elections and big issues in the hands of our students here at Bethel, I think we're going to be okay. Well, that's well said, and I appreciate hearing that. 
But you and I have got to go. Uh, we uh, Scott started a thing at the beginning of this year called Super Tuesdays. Every Tuesday, we, uh, it's an open call to anybody who wants to join a whole group of faculty and students for lunch to talk about the election and the political process. So we're going to go have some lunch. Uh, hopefully, you all can have a snack if you're listening to this, too. Uh, this is Chris Moore. Uh, thank you for joining us again. We'll be back on Thursday with our regularly scheduled podcast. But for now, go Royals. Go Royals.